Well, hello, JICF. It's great to be with you again. And thank you, elders, for this opportunity to preach God's word to the church in Jakarta. I count it a real privilege. Well, what a year 2020 has been so far. Who could have predicted or anticipated the events of the COVID-19 era? Certainly not my family as we departed Jakarta in January to return to Adelaide in South Australia. It's been tough for us and I'm sure for many people in JICF, and it continues to be so as our cities experience lockdown and we consider what will the new normal of life turn out to be. Well, the COVID-19 virus has affected everything and everyone. Perhaps you know that when the virus was first on our radar, it was called the novel coronavirus, meaning the new virus, until it was discovered that it actually was a strain of an already existing virus called the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Well, if I was to make a movie of this year and all the experiences that the whole world has encountered, I would call that the shock of the new. And the title, The Shock of the New, is an apt title also for our text this morning, The Calling of Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. And we read these words, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. As Jesus went on from there, from where? Well, he went on from his ministry base in Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee. Reading chapter 9 and indeed chapter 8, we know that Jesus has set up his ministry base, a strategic location in the north of Israel. Yes, Capernaum was a small town by all accounts. Yes, it was looked down upon by the religious elite, the southerners who lived in Jerusalem. However, we must not uh, misunderstand its significance in that it sits on a superhighway called the Via Maris, the road that connected Egypt with Syria and with Babylon. And it was in, in this town and through this town that hundreds of thousands of people would pass every year as they conducted their trade and traveled through the Middle East. And of course, in this region, there were borders. There was a border near Capernaum, the border between Galilee and Roman Syria, between Bethsaida in Roman city, Roman Syria and Capernaum in Galilee. And we can imagine Matthew, the tax collector, sitting and working at that border crossing, collecting tolls that were paid by travelers to the occupying Roman authorities. Now, previously, Jesus has been across the Sea of Galilee in a region called the Decapolis, where he delivered a man of demons and was asked by the residents of that locality to leave. And so he returned across the sea to the region of Galilee in and around Capernaum, where he conducted a healing ministry. And now he's on the move again. And on the move, he meets Matthew. The shock of 
than you. The shock of Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, who I'm sure you have been taught and told over the years was a traitor. Indeed, considered a thief by his fellow Jews, working as he did for the occupying Roman authorities. But it was much more serious than that because Israel was not a democracy. It was a theocracy. And in that theocracy, there were the righteous and the unrighteous. There was the Jew and the Gentile. And the enemies of God were the enemies of Israel. Uh, Matthew wasn't just out of favour with his own people, the Pharisees, for example, would say. He was out of favour with God himself, an enemy of God, an outsider, someone who should be ostracised. And it's to this man, an ostracised man, an outsider, that Jesus comes and meets him and invites him to become an insider. Some people might have said, of course, naturally, why bother with this bloke, Jesus? After all, he owns a house. He has a lot of money. He has a lot of friends. He can throw parties. He's very busy. And he seems, by all accounts, to be happy with his lot. Why bother with that man, Jesus? Of course, the Pharisees would uh, ask a different question, not why bother with that man, Jesus, but don't bother with that man, Jesus. He's God's enemies. And if you're on God's side, he's your enemy as well as he is ours. And what Jesus is doing here in this shock of the new experience is overturning all notions of religious acceptability in the nation of Israel. He says to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Follow me. It's a command. It's a word of decision. It's a word of destiny. All Christian discipleship begins with our response to the call of God. Make a decision. Leave your dishonest past. Leave your sin. Leave everything behind that was disreputable and follow Jesus as his disciple. It's a call that invites a decision which will shape a destiny. I wonder, what did Matthew see in Jesus? Can you imagine that many people have passed by Matthew over the years and many of them haven't looked him in the eye. They've despised him with disgust. Some may have spat at him even. Others sworn at him for his behaviour. But not Jesus. Jesus saw Matthew. And we can understand that in seeing Matthew, Matthew saw Jesus was Jesus the first person to genuinely look Matthew in the eye, to treat him as a human being? We'll discover later in this text that the Pharisees also saw Matthew. Jesus sees Matthew. The Pharisees see 
Matthew. But Jesus sees a person. And the Pharisees see only a theological problem. I'm sure Matthew heard kindness in the strong command of Jesus to follow him. And what did Jesus see in Matthew? Did he see his gifts? The tax collector at the toll gate. He has abilities in accountancy. He can count money. He can record totals. It needed to be accurate if he was to find favour with his Roman employers. And he had the ability of literacy. He could write. He could take uh, a writing implement and record in a scroll. Did Jesus see his gifts? And did Jesus say to himself, here's the man who is best equipped to become a gospel writer? A man of detail, a man of accurate accounting, a man who can write and record my story. And beyond his gifts, although related to his gifts, did Jesus see the grace of God transforming this man, lifting him up out of his sin and leading him to salvation and security in following Jesus as his saviour. Well, we can only imagine what both Matthew and Jesus saw of and in each other. But we do know that with the appeal and attractiveness of Jesus and the authority of his command, Matthew got up and followed him. And this is kind of the language that we hear from other people in the New Testament who describe their response to the gospel. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, says that God called me. Uh, Peter, writing to Christians in the region of Bithynia and Cappadocia, which today is in central Turkey, says that they had been called by God out of darkness into his wonderful Light. The call of God is crucial in Christian discipleship. Have you heard that call? Have you left your sin decisively? Are you walking in that new destiny, knowing that Jesus has anticipated all your gifts and wants to put them to work for the sake of the gospel? The shock of the new. The calling of this man, Matthew. And then you will know from the text, there's the shock of the meal. We read these words. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. The scene has changed. Matthew, with a heart full of gratefulness, has invited Jesus to come to his house and have dinner. And Jesus not only has dinner, he has dinner with sinners. He's dining 
with the disreputable. You see, Jesus wasn't just a talking head. He wasn't just a wordsmith. He didn't just say things. He said and he did. He acted on his authoritative words. He shows grace to Matthew and he says grace with Matthew at the dinner table. The Pharisees, of course, are only concerned with the guest list. Who's on it and why are they there? Jesus is all about the grace of God extended to sinners. The Pharisees view themselves as the godly ones in society. They were a party, a sect within Israel reacting to the hypocrisy of the priests who often colluded with occupying forces and enriched themselves from that relationship. The Pharisees were those who resisted and rejected any encounters with God's enemies. They were strict. They were disciplined. They were pious. They said their prayers and they completely missed the point. They think if Jesus really is the Messiah, then he will reward the righteous, that being them. And if Jesus really is the Messiah, then the coming of the Messiah brings with it the expectation that God's enemies will be removed from the land. You don't sit down and have dinner with them, they believe. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, we've already mentioned and we'll say it again. Because Jesus saw people and the Pharisees only saw theological problems. And we need to see the difference. And we need to be a community of people, Christian people, who see people as people and not people as problems. There are, of course, many people who have problems. We ourselves, each one of us, have problems. But when the grace of God is operating freely within a community of Christian faith, there is an openness, there's an outreach to those outside, which comes with it an invitation to come inside and to believe and to belong to God's forgiven people. Well, Jesus goes further, doesn't he, when he says on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. We've seen the shock of the new, the shock of Matthew, and we've seen the shock of the meal, dining with Matthew and dining with sinners. And Jesus says to those Pharisees who hold these unrighteous attitudes, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You see, Jesus understands that people go to doctors when they know themselves to be sick, when they are not healthy to find a cure. But the Pharisees who believe themselves to be very spiritually healthy, thank you very much. 
if they don't recognize their real condition as sinners, they will not want the cure that Jesus has come to offer. A doctor comes to heal. Uh, the Pharisees would rather him be a policeman and to set up strict laws to get crime off the street and out of the temple. But Jesus says, no, I've come as a doctor. I've identified those who are unwell. And I have a cure. I have a vaccination with which they can come clean and be clean. And in so doing, go from outsiders to insiders in the kingdom of God. Well, Matthew has invited all his friends to this party. You can imagine it's quite a crowd and many of them with reputations that exceed them for good and for ill. But as what, what one man has said, and I love this phrase, what Jesus does is by entering Matthew's house, he turns that house into a temple and he turns the table into an altar. It's an altar where mercy can be found. I desire mercy, Jesus says, not sacrifice. And so we see the shock of the new, the shock of Matthew being called. We see the shock of the new, the shock of the meal which Jesus attends. And the third shock in this test, in this text is the shock of mercy. I desire mercy, Jesus says, not sacrifice. This is the lesson he says we must learn. Go and learn what this means. Jesus is, in fact, quoting from the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. If you're familiar with Hosea's story, it's a dreadful story. It's a story of a man who's married to a woman who becomes a prostitute, prefiguring, in a sense, the attitudes of Israel themselves to their husband, God. And she's off whoring with many men, and God calls Hosea, her husband, to welcome her back, not to set up barriers, to come near to her, to love her again, his unfaithful wife, in a demonstration of the merciful heart of God for his wandering people. We might say his wicked people. This is the heart of God. He comes near to the lost and he loves them. And as he did, Matthew, standing at his tax collector booth, speaks to them with words of affection and authority, calling them out of their sin into a new life, a salvation life, the life of faith, which is the flourishing life, the healthy life, the holy life. Is this what we do? Have we learnt this lesson? I recently saw an application for a ministry role which required a number of referees to be listed and 
I was surprised. I had not seen this before. The application asked not only for Christian referees, this is a Christian ministry, but also one referee for, from someone who is not a Christian or not yet a Christian who knows you well. What a challenge. Who are the not yet or not Christian people who know us well? Who are these people? Do we meet with them? Do we eat meals with them? Do we come close to them? I learned also recently at a seminar that it takes at least 90 hours of contact in relationship to become someone's close friend. Well, do I have any non-Christian friends? Do you have any non-Christian friends? Uh, to these people, God would want us to extend mercy as our ministry as disciples of Jesus. A movie was produced recently, a great movie called Just Mercy. Did you see it? It's a true story. The story of a man who was wrongly imprisoned for murder in the United States, Walter McMillan, and he takes on as his uh, attorney, an African-American graduate from Harvard University, Brian Stevenson, and together as the movie unfolds and they combat the inherent racism and uh, injustices that have happened in the case, uh, he is finally freed and declared innocent. I recommend you watch that movie, Just Mercy. And that's all they wanted, Just Mercy. And they got it. But when we read the scriptures, we discover that it's not just mercy that God offers. It's more mercy that God offers. The book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 2. May God give you more mercy. More mercy. As William Sibbs said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in me. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in me. And it's with that understanding and attitude that we go out into the world to extend mercy and grace to those who are considered outsiders, who are ostracized, who haven't heard of this mercy. And if they did, might well get up and follow Jesus. So the question is not that of the Pharisees, who can I eat with? The question really is, who must I eat with? And we could make this our prayer, even during this COVID era. Yes, there are restrictions to relationships and to contact. But at least if it can't be acted out immediately or regularly, it's the heart attitude of our prayers. It's the desire of our heart, the desire to be a merciful people, to minister to people with the mercy of Jesus so that they might meet him and be made whole. God bless you, J-I-C-F, throughout this COVID era. I pray for the church that you would continue to flourish as you take every opportunity 
as you can do electronically or otherwise to meet with one another and encourage one another in your faith. God bless you and look forward to preaching to you again on July 26.